Hi guys, sorry this one's late, and I'm being even quieter than normal, but it's a telework day, so we have a bunch of federal government employees in the house, and uh, they're stuck here because of the snow, and I couldn't go to work, and I'm sorry this is late, and gosh, this snowstorm has got a lot going on with it, but uh, thanks for joining us, I'm Aaron Teachman, this is Exit the Stage Door, you're not here by accident, I hope, and if you are, I hope you stick around, because we're gonna have a chat today with, or it wasn't today, but we're gonna play it for you today, <sighs> man. Anyway, it's Jojo Roof, who is, let me get this right, the managing director of the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics at Georgetown, and she was the associate executive director at National New Play Network, and she is the executive and mm, creative director with the Welders. Look, she has a lot of titles because she's an accomplished person, and she is a wonderful person to sit down with. I am very grateful that she gave me the time. And uh, here you go, folks, Jojo Roof. Awesome. Okay, that is taking off the headphones. We have officially started. Awesome. With um, a, on Georgetown campus. I have never been to Georgetown before. Uh, I wasn't expecting it to be this dense. <laughs> it's really tall buildings. Yes. yes. Some of which are older than others. Yes. It's easier to build up here than build out. I can so. imagine since you're on this promontory surrounded yes. by stone keeping it up. Uh, and you've been, so I, I, I love the title, <laughs> Thanks. Um, it, it, but it's long. It is. It is. It's a mouthful. Managing director starts it off, and it's mm -hmm. that's a really good one. I, mm -hmm. That's where it starts really well for me. I, um, uh, no, I've lost it. Okay. So it's the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics at Georgetown University. So it's it's quite a, you have to memorize it and practice it at home. <laughs> uh, so you've been doing this since the beginning of the year? Since... Yeah, so um, full time since um, the beginning of January. Um, so I've been, the lab has been around for about three years and mm -hmm. I've actually been working with them part time since it was founded and actually working for the department before that. Oh, um, okay. And, uh, but uh, was formerly working at the National New Play Network mm -hmm. um, for five years there, um, most recently as the associate executive director. Um, and so left NNPN at the very end of December and started here full time at the beginning of January. Um, so it's been, 2015 has been filled with transition, <laughs> which is exciting and, um, and really fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Man, so many things to talk about <laughs> in, the, in the paragraph that you just unleashed. Um, let's go with the with the new gig for now, and then we'll we'll wrap wrap back around because Great. I also want to at, at least touch on your work with the welders as well. Sure, so like yeah, definitely. The full package here. There's yes. A, um, I the little basic research that I did on on um, this one feels so it's a new microphone, and I'm very <laughs> self conscious about it because it's much more in my face than the other one. Uh, <laughs> it's going off the rails already. Uh, Derek Goldman mm -hmm. is, and this is kind of a stupid question, but have you ever worked with someone who's famous for giving a TED Talk before? I have not, I don't think. No, although Gwydion Sullivan gave oh, multiple TED Talks, right. I think, so yeah, yeah. he sort of paved the way for this. <laughs> um, yeah, so Derek is the um, co-founding director of the lab, along with um, Ambassador Cynthia Schneider, who's a professor here at Georgetown in the School of Foreign Service, and then was the ambassador to the Netherlands, to the Netherlands um, during the Clinton administration. Mm, okay. um, so, uh, so yeah, so it's, I mean, the lab is essentially the intersection of um, culture and art and politics, and is um, it's uh, 
both the theater and performance studies program here at Georgetown as well as the School of Foreign Service. So the fact that Derek and Cynthia are the co-directors is really sort of what the lab is all about. Right, yeah. That's at, I absolutely love the concept and it's the, to make Georgetown the home of it is pretty great. And it feels yeah. like, why haven't we had this idea before? I, like, did it gestate for a really long time? Or what, what precipitated it, the actually going ahead and doing something that you hear symposiums on all the time? Right, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there, there are certainly, nationwide and globally, there are organizations that are similar to this. So the Hemispheric Institute is one of them. Um, certainly Ping Chong and his company have been doing very similar things with all their work. Um, but there isn't um, an organization specifically dedicated to this, certainly in DC. Um, and there were converse, there really have been, as you said, conversations around this for years and years and years. And, um, and I think Cynthia started thinking a lot about it during her time as ambassador and then afterwards, and she does a huge amount of travel. Um, and so going to all of these different countries and trying to figure out um, how art can be used as, nobody likes the word diplomacy, but as a form of <laughs> diplomacy um, right. or, you know, as yeah. um, a way to connect with um, the people who are living there and, and to connect Americans to what's happening overseas. And so um, three summers ago, I think it was, we had um, a global convening on, um, uh, oh, now I'm going to forget the name of this convening, but this gigantic global convening, um, which was on cultural and diplomacy. And, um, and we had about 100 people from all across the world um, we had uh, Shahid Nadim from Pakistan, so, uh, Pakistan's leading playwright. Ali Mahdi from the Sudan was here. Ping Chong was here. I mean, really mm. all over the world um, came in for this. Um, and then we had scholars like Marvin Carlson here and um, people from uh, many DC artistic directors um, and just had these series of panels over three days to talk about very broadly defined cultural right, culture right. and diplomacy um, <laughs> and sort of what was in the zeitgeist and what people yeah. were talking about and really out of that discussion which was very heady in many ways I mean it was people <laughs> yeah, sitting in <laughs> people sitting in a room in our black box downstairs um, for hours <laughs> and hours at a time just talking and you know none of the panels stuck to the time that they were supposed oh, to because it goes it, like the conversation just exploded in this really exciting way um, and that convening um, corresponded with we had um, this group of uh, artists from um, the University of Baghdad here and they were oh. doing the first ever Arabic performance of um, Heather Raffo's Nine Parts of Desire so um, it really we were sort of already having this really exciting residency and so decided to have this conversation uh, yeah, around okay, it. Okay. Um, so out of that conversation, the idea for the lab was really born. Um, we sort of transcribed all of those conversations and, uh, and then realized that there wanted to be a resource center, a lab for um, the intersection of these, of these yeah. two ideas. Um, and it was created. I like the idea that it's called a lab as well because yeah. so much of it is, has to be well, we just have to try it. We mm -hmm. have to do something to begin this engagement process because I think to do something like this well, you'd have to do a deep dive in, into your own culture and into other cultures yeah. and then figuring out the, the ways in which the pieces fit together, especially because when the aspect of diplomacy, the idea is that you're deliberately engaging in not a lot of provocation, but the opportunity for 
misunderstanding, sure. it's also the opportunity for learning. So sure. like, how do you manage all of those sharp edges? And yeah. Yeah, lab is, sounds like the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of an open door for different possibilities. Mm. So the first real event that launched the lab um, was Anna Devere Smith was in residency oh. here for a week. Um, working on her on this new play called On Grace with this stunning cellist Joshua Roman, and they it was in typical Anna Devere Smith style. She had interviewed a bunch of people, included the Dalai Lama and sort of all of these religious figures, <laughs> right, right. and having this conversation about grace. Mm -hmm. um, and while that was happening. Joshua was playing cello sort of underneath and he was improving a lot of it, but I mean, it was just sort of the stunning launch of the lab in many ways. Um, and uh, so that is one model and we've had other residencies. Mm -hmm. Heather Raffo is gonna be in residency with us um, in this coming fall slash winter. Um, and, uh, and, but then we've also had, you know, two nights of our production that we've brought in. So we, Freedom Theater from Janine Refugee Camp did um, Fugard to the Island. Whoa. Um, and so they came here and did that. Um, and we just had a group, um, Shahid and Deem came back with his, with a joke of theater and they did Imrikachalo, Destination USA, which is about, um, it takes place in a visa office in Pakistan and it's about US-Pakistani relations. Oh. So really all of these models and I think because we are a lab and because it's sort of this resource center broadly defined, um, we can be very reactive to current mm, events mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, and program as exciting things sort of come about. Yeah, that's, yeah. I like the, I, I feel like the, the, the lab concept also lets it be just, when you deal with something that's difficult, there's just less of a sense of provocation. Like, mm. it's not, you're not like, with a broad brush or saying anything like this is the cultural engagement or whatever. Definitely. You're just like, no, this is just one way we're kind of figuring it out. Yeah, come, yeah. Come help us figure it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that the lab also, the idea of a lab also allows for conversations to happen. Mm -hmm. So after every performance, we have panel discussions and, um, uh, and because of Cynthia's connections at state, we have usually pretty high profile people. Oh, yeah. um, so the ambassador of Pakistan to the US was just here at America Chalo and did sort of an opening remarks. And, um, and it really allows us to engage with the audience mm. and have conversations, not just on the stage during the art, but right. afterwards. Yeah. So, um, so the conversations really become act two. Yeah, I, we talked about that with uh, a little bit with uh, Catherine Rodriguez, mm. um, the dramaturg at the yeah. center stage. Like, where does the art begin? And mm. it's really important that the art doesn't begin and end with the performance. Definitely, it, the, that's just sort of the middle part, and then you've got prep and act two to follow, where the engagement continues. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, for sure. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> How on earth did you become the managing director of this project? <laughs> um, good question. <laughs> um, so I. So I went to Georgetown many, many years ago oh, um, okay. and, uh, and was here actually before the building was even built. Um, oh, okay. And Derek Goldman, um, he, I guess he came to, started working at the university like at the end of my freshman year. And so I knew him and mm -hmm. he um, like mentored my, it wasn't technically a thesis project at the time, but like my sort of major directing project when I was an undergrad here. Mm -hmm. um, and then... When and I after I graduated, I left and traveled for a year, and then I came back and um, sort of decided, worked with him on a number of things. We did this gigantic Tennessee Williams Centennial Festival several years ago oh, that oh, I was yeah, the yeah. coordinating producer for, okay. and so we've been engaging with them 
as a producer or coordinating producer, mm -hmm. loosely defined um, things both related to the lab and then pre-lab as well. Um, and I mean, I, so I worked for the National New Play Network for five years, and um, the reason I was there is largely because Derek connected me to Jason Lowe with their former executive gotcha. director. Okay. Um, and, you know, I've, I loved my time at NNPN, and um, it was sort of this amazing experience, and I'm sure we'll talk about NNPN in a little bit, but, <laughs> um, but wanted to, the idea of engaging with international work on a daily mm, basis mm -hmm. was really exciting to me. Um, I did a huge amount of travel throughout Southeast Asia after I graduated, oh, and, okay. um, and Morocco and Turkey, and sort of continuing uh -huh. that was really exciting. Um, and also as, you know, going from associate executive director at NNPN, which um, is really, I mean, it's so nationally focused in this really exciting way, and they're growing and, um, and doing really hugely important pro programs, but mm -hmm. wanting to be able to like dig down and be a little closer to the art was also really exciting. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's one and of those things, yeah. yeah. When you're 10 years ago or whatever, when you're thinking about your career, the idea that you do that yeah. would never occur. No, that's, no, certainly not. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like that sort of happens with a lot of people, right? Like yeah, true. You sort of, I mean, I came into Georgetown as a math major, and so, oh, okay. and well, so the yeah. idea of like, you plan this, this path, but then you get sidetracked, and that makes it more exciting, and you learn from those experiences. And Absolutely. Results where you are. I started off life thinking that, well, not life, uh, my college career thinking I would be a chemical engineer, and uh, that did not didn't happen. Did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. And here I am as a podcaster, the shy kid in the corner, talking to people who are perfect strangers to mm -hmm. him. Uh, it's going pretty well, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something prepared me for it. Yeah. But, but that's, that's also, too, that what I found in my own personal career path is that as you, as, you, uh, as you accumulate these weirder bits of your biography, they, mm -hmm. they can produce moments of real synergy that are so for, fortuitous, and, and when it falls into place, you get an opportunity to bridge what sometimes feel like different worlds of your, or like different parts of your brain that don't talk to each other, and then it all happens at once as part of this new project that feels especially satisfying. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was the case here too. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So on the, you're a playwright as well? I'm actually not a playwright. Okay. So uh, yeah, so I wanted yes. to touch on a little bit with your with work the with the welders and, totally. and founding a theater that eats itself, I guess. <laughs> or Yeah, we have a, yeah. So, um, so I'm the executive and creative director of mm -hmm. The Welders. So The Welders is um, a playwrights collective here in DC, um, and we're dedicated to sort of creating a new, evolving alternative platform for play development mm -hmm. in the district. Um, and it's made up of five playwrights, um, Gwydion Sullivan, Kelly and Sinette Jennings, Bob Bartlett, Ali Curran, and Renee Calarco. Um, and what we do is uh, we're doing five world premieres of their plays over three years. And then at the end of the three years, we're passing everything from our board to the bank account to our logo onto a new group of playwrights. And then they all sort of take what we did and um, it'll change a little bit, certainly depending mm -hmm. on who they are and what they want to do. And then um, at the end of their time, they'll pass it on to a new group and on and on into the future. Um, so my role is not as a playwright, thank goodness for everyone in D.C., um, and uh, it's really to support the five yeah. um, welders um, and to sort of do what you typically think of 
for executive director, so yeah. um, budgets and board relations and help with development and all of that, but then also I think the creative side of it is um, a little bit embedded dramaturgy. Um, oh, okay. And then, uh, although... It hasn't quite happened that way thus far, but there's still hope for the future. Um, but then also sort of be, I think it's really challenging to be both an artistic director and the playwright at the same time, because oh, yeah. that's the model. So yeah. when it's the playwright's turn to do their play, they become the leader and they can do whatever they want with the budget and hire who they want. And they certainly, I mean, we all, we have bi-weekly meetings, so there's a lot of discussion right. about yeah. everything, but they're the leader. And so there are times when it's extremely challenging to be both the playwright and the artistic director. Absolutely. So I sort of yeah. step in in that regard and help support them however they need. Gotcha. Yeah. It's it's hard there. It's often hard for regional theaters for the artistic director to be the director, totally. let alone yeah. the part where they're being the playwright and yeah, for sure. doing all the rest of that stuff. So yeah, that's yeah. it's an interesting su way to support the playwriting process too, which yeah. I I love that it's happening a lot of in DC. Obviously, I I know. DC theater seem the best. I'm sure it's happening in other places. Yeah. But experimenting with, I, wouldn't, I don't even know if you want to call it a business model, but like a model or just a way of doing it that just lets you freeze yourself up from this linear process that we think we understand and we're constantly talking about it being in crisis. Mm -hmm. And just, what if we did it this way? And find yeah. out over the course of three years the best way. And I love that it's a group too because yes. the, the process is, is really important that it's five people working in concert as a collective yeah, already to yeah. take over. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so 13P um, in New York, which Sarah Rule was part of and mm. Winter Miller, and um, they, uh, so they're a group of 13 playwrights and they did uh, world premieres of their plays. And their motto was, we don't develop plays, we do them. So they oh. were sort of tired yeah. of being stuck in development hell or something yeah. similar <laughs> and just wanted to like produce their own plays. and. Um, and so, and this, they had an implosion party at the end because they weren't going to continue and it was <laughs> yeah. done and they had all done their world premieres. Um, but so we sort of took that model and I know Winter Miller and um, Maria Goyanis, who's the uh, a producer at The Public who served as their mm, okay. executive director, I believe. Um, she sort of started as a producer and then shifted to their executive director. Um, we had a lot of conversations with them early on as we were forming the welders that, um, yeah, that taking the power into the, the hands of the playwright. And so often in regional theaters, the the artistic director, which is so rarely a playwright, although we actually have many examples of that in D.C. with Ari Roth and <laughs> yeah. Kwame Kwerma and mm -hmm. Jason Loweth. Um, but typically, the playwright is not the artistic director, and so they are sort of brought into the process generally relatively late, although, right. again, there are models that that's not true. Um, but they don't have as much agency as I think certainly the five playwrights as part of Welders wanted to have agency. Um, mm -hmm. And so taking the power back into their own hands and um, and really making something of it. Um, and I'm particularly excited about, I mean, I think the fact that we created the Welders is great and exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, But to me, the most exciting part is the fact that it's going to be passed on. Yeah. That, um, you know, that... We've created, we've given opportunities to the, the five current welders, and um, and they're writing these super exciting plays, and and um, you know having a really figuring, discovering what it takes to be an artistic director, which I think was maybe different than they had anticipated, and it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, and, sure, yeah. Um, but then at the end of the time, that we get to pass that on to a new group, yeah. and they get to continue to evolve it and and take their experiences, um, and that 
you know, hopefully 15 years down the road, there will be five different groups of welders yeah. and, um, and we could all have a reunion. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that it'll sort of, it's a, it's a yes and to the yeah, regional oh, yeah. fair. I don't think it's an alternative. Sure. I don't think it's an either or, but it's a yes and. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it because um, a lot. I think a lot of a lot of times, the the dreamers want to like hold just uproot the current system and lay waste to it and start over, and a lot of that's that's not. The instinct that leads you to that idea isn't necessarily wrong, sure. but but it's it's less threatening for them who are talented people in their own right. Um, and it's easier to participate in the whole scene as, as an organic idea if you're yes-anding rather right. than saying, no, you have to stop your improv to make, for me to do my improv. Yes. Everybody improvs together. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. 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 And I think all of the current welders right now have productions going on or about to or will have them next season. Um, I mean, Renee has a piece of Theater J and Gwydion's about... I think actually today he's flying down to Florida. Oh yeah, Gulf Shore. Shore. Yeah, Gulf Shore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first play the butcher, and um, and Kellyanne has a production coming up, and Ali has. I mean, it, like all of them um, are still working in the regional theater, and I think that the welders is successful because of that. Yeah. I think it's if they were only doing the welders, I don't think we would be as successful as we've been thus far mm -hmm. because they have this amazing group of patrons who are excited about them and artists who love working with them, and so. Yeah we were really sort of able to jump into the DC theater scene in a way we might not have been able to if it was um, made up of entirely of playwrights who had never worked regionally. Or... Right, right. Well, and I, this, uh, you talk about each of them getting to serve as, an, uh, as the sort of artistic director, and I think mm -hmm. this is really interesting too because that's the kind of thing that you don't normally get training in. Totally. Like if you land in the job, you generally stick in it because usually, well not usually, but a lot of the time that's about the personality and then molding the office to fit the person that you want to be the artistic leader of your group. But the idea that it, that it can serve as a skills acquisition, yeah. but not in an intern or apprentice way, but like really we're going to give people this opportunity to do it, yeah. to really do it, to really learn about it, yeah. and then push it out into the rest of the world. Uh, is really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, Allie was our fearless canary in the coal mine and did it the first time because mm -hmm. she was our first playwright gotcha. up. Um, and uh, I think what's sort of really amazing to watch is her and now Colleen, who had the second production, help acclimate Bob, who's in the third production, in terms of here are ways that I found it was important to be supported. And mm. um, I found that, you know, during tech, it was helpful to X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, and we have these these intense post-mortems after each production so that we really can continue to learn and continue yeah, to improve. Um, but yeah, I think that one of the challenges certainly in, in regional theater is um, this idea of training um, that, you know, there's, what are you able to do as an intern or as a fellow? Um, is there real sort of hands-on training? And it doesn't really exist anywhere for exclusively new plays, which mm -hmm. I think is a whole separate conversation. Um, <laughs> and is one of the reasons that the National New Play Network created the Producer in Residence program mm. is that they wanted to create producers who were working with new plays and working at, mm. at regional theaters that were producing new plays. Um, and we've gotten a whole range of people in that, that program who, you know, 
don't want to become an artistic director. They just wanted to sort of produce new plays or oh, be around yeah, okay. new plays. But then many, particularly recently, who are really excited about being an artistic director one day, and this felt like a really great entry into that so they could mm. work directly with the artistic director of the theater. Um, so yeah, I think that training is really important. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that some of these larger organizations, they, uh, you know, we're talking about budgets and the tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And companies that aren't, arts related when they get to that level have a sense that they need to train their employees to mm. do things and to equip them better and to keep them long term they need to make them better at their current job or mm. train them for a different one role within the organization like my I, I have a friend uh, in Boise mm. um, she's a title officer but she started but it was such an it's an old-fashioned story it's a small title company mm. in Boise Idaho she started off I think it's like a receptionist became a title officer and then became their tech support for their very specialized titling research software Wow! Um, over the course of like 13 years. And I don't hear those stories coming out of a lot of theaters. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting topic. I mean, I think um, the idea of paying interns and not paying them enough has certainly been in the media recently. <laughs> right, yes. Um, and are you really... There are some theaters who are more successful in hiring interns and then turning it into staff positions mm -hmm. and then sort of having people grow within the, the organization, which I think would be incredibly challenging to do because you need a certain number of interns every year and there's no way that you're going to have that much turnover every year or have the ability to grow your staff <clears throat> each year by the number of interns or good interns that you have. Right. Um, so I think it's a tricky situation, but certainly... Um, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have this amazing internship at Arena Stage and their community engagement program when mm. I was in college that um, that was just phenomenal. And I was trained really well and worked with um, two really, really wonderful people. I mean, the entire community engagement department is sort of extraordinary and, and just really delightful and lovely, lovely human beings. Um, and But was this really great experience. I didn't feel like I was just running to get coffee. I felt mm, yeah, like yeah. I had stake in what was happening and I had agency and um, you know, it's not always possible to create situations like that, sure. but I was really fortunate to have one and then continued working. I was working for the camp within community engagement, oh, okay, yeah. the summer camp. Mm -hmm. Um and so went back to work subsequent years and um and just had a really fabulous time and, and grew as an artist and as an administrator and sort of organizationally. And, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that's always possible. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's and certainly doesn't true. happen all the time. So. <laughs> all, all true. <laughs> all true. And, and that's, that's what's interesting, too, because I've definitely benefited from having an internship. Mm -hmm. But I also, I, I, it's really interesting. I just shook the table. I apologize, <laughs> dear listeners. Um, I came to theater really late. Um, I, I ended up getting a German degree and then got a master's degree in German because I thought I would do that academic part. Turned out I hated that. <laughs> Wanted to go into film. So I'd spent, I'd been in um, college for like six years before I finally stumbled onto doing theater. Oh, interesting. At all. Um, and I stumbled into it t in two ways. Um, in 2006, I got the random internship because they desperately needed bodies mm. more than they needed like functional interns. They just needed functional human beings to push <laughs> things around. And they weren't picky about, I, I happen to know a little bit about lighting, but they weren't actually that picky about it. Like the, there was a playwright who was the sound intern that year. 
this was her New York Station film up at uh, Vassar. Oh, okay. Their powerhouse yeah. season, yeah. Um, which was cool. Mm. And then I got hired at the alley because two of the people, my boss and, well, the, the master electrician and the um, lighting supervisor both worked at the alley and the mm. alley had an opening. So they encouraged me to apply and I did. And there, I just worked with Clint Allen again. He's a, he's a projection designer now. Mm. Um, at the time, he was the lighting supervisor at the alley. And I, uh, the only thing on my resume that had anything to do with theater and electricity was that summer, which I wow. hadn't even finished it yet. Huh. And we're talking about a job doing it professionally. Hmm. Um, and I'm certain it had everything to do with the word of the two guys who were sure. super cool people. Um, David Roy and Dan Jones. Um, D. Roy actually works in New York a lot as a oh, freelance wow. lighting designer. and all, He's very cool people. Um, Dan is in Las Vegas now, <laughs> working for Cirque, as so many, wow. so many people end up in right. the theater working in Cirque. It's kind of crazy. Um, but they took a chance on a completely non-standard mm. biography. Mm. And that worked out really well for me. I'm really happy to be in theater. I wanted to be in, in a... I knew that I sort of instantly recognized that breaking into the film industry at my age and with needing a... I say that when I was 27, but... <laughs> Uh, but also not having any kind of financial support to do that. Right. Um, I just knew that wasn't going to work. So I needed a job, and I wanted to be in a creative industry. So theater seemed accessible, and, and it became so. Hmm. Um, I bounced around a lot because it becomes there. It, there comes a straitjacket moment, like a where you're in it so long that they just want you to keep doing it. And hmm. I, that part I chafed at, and eventually sort of trying to make my own idea of how I want to be in theater, but. Nowadays, a lot of the internships don't go to people who have strange biographies. They go to people who went to school right. for what they're interning for. Yeah. Which well, is, it's an interesting professionalization. And I think a lot has a lot to do with the economy because sure. you, oh, yeah. if you can't get a job, you go back to grad school. Well, and yeah. um, I mean, and that's a whole separate conversation about <laughs> grad schools and the oh, cost yeah. of them Oof. and all of that. Are we turning out too many people in grad schools? Um, for an industry, but um, but yeah, I think it's definitely true that um, you know at one point I considered going back to grad school, and who knows, it still may happen. But but at the time, it didn't seem like I would benefit from it because I would sort of be right back where I was right. at the moment yeah. working at an NPN, um, and and I think it's you know I think that there are certainly benefits of having a varied biography mm. and um, and not necessarily knowing what you want to do because I think as we were talking about earlier you sort of gather all of these things together and um, yeah. you know my traveling for a year gave me experiences that I never would have had otherwise and and certainly made me more interested in international work um, but uh, but at the time when I came back there was immediately a part of me that was like, wow, I've screwed myself because <laughs> I didn't go to grad school or because I didn't enter into an internship immediately or whatever. Right. And, you know, now I can look back at the time and that was a really smart decision. But, but at the time it feels, I think it feels really black and white and it's totally gray. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Like up until that point, most people are used to two options and one is right and one is wrong and you like have to make a decision and um and when in fact i think that there's so many different paths and they're all correct yeah yeah the uh the richard Feynman theory of career development that was a physics joke for <laughs> i have a meeting at 11 up here did you see anyone come up here i did not okay thank you
<laughs> we are doing this in a public place. We um, are. So, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, it was a sum of our past joke for, for the like one <laughs> physics nerd that might listen to it. Um, cool guy, you should catch up with him if you are a physics nerd, or if you're not. Um, no, sorry, my, I'm trying to get back on track. The, oh, it's all gray and that all the yeah. paths are correct. I think that's a really interesting, and I think a lot of people that I'm working with, as, a, as, I come, as I became a freelancer, I'm discovering that there is a very large pool underneath the, in the theater scene that is beginning to understand this, that doesn't look for employment at one theater, but is in theater. Certainly. And then everything, every opportunity and every path they follow in order to, to be a part of the scene in a much more organic way and I, that I think is really great. And, I, and Clint gave me really great advice. Um, when he left to go to grad school, actually, uh, to get his MFA in lighting design, he asked me what I thought I was going to do with the rest of my life in lighting. It's like, oh, I don't know, move somewhere, says to do something like that or whatever. He's like, and I gave him the standard spiel from, that I had gotten, which I had no business having because <laughs> I didn't work in theater, but after I had accumulated enough sense of what people's own career paths were, I was like, uh, that's what these people did. And he, and he said, why, when you have lived such an unconventional life, do you have such a conventional plan? Mm. Uh, and that was a great, that got me thinking, and I didn't, I wasn't in a place to completely grab a hold of that, although I did leave the alley a year after that and go to New York to try to be a director, which was astonishingly stupid. <laughs> um, but, you know, but it was in that vein, and things have, and that, talk about moments where like, man, this was a terrible decision. <laughs> things have worked out really well since then, but yeah, yeah. it's a, uh, it's, there's, no, there's definitely not a black and white in, like, this career path is best. It's not even, it, you, I would think of it in terms of, like, odds, like, optima, optimality is not the right word. Some career paths are less optimal than others, mm -hmm. but none of them are necessarily, like, wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the really exciting parts about the DC theater scene is that so many artists are working at multiple spaces. And so you have actors that work on Fords and then they work at Theater J and then they work at Welders and then they work at Forum and, you know, and they, you aren't, people aren't sort of limited to a certain size theater, I yeah. think in a really great way and, and, um, and just makes the community really vibrant and exciting. And, um, and certainly I, even though I had a full-time job at an, and NPN was still working here for Georgetown and was working with the welders and right. um, uh, and I'm one of the co-producers for the Women's Voices Theater Festival and so that there's really a lot going on at all times um, which I think is exciting. Oh. Hmm. I have discovered a problem. Uh -oh. That's why we have backups folks. <laughs> okay sure. Um, yeah. Sorry. No. <laughs> this has been the most distracted I've ever done. It's the okay. podcast. Uh, but we do have the backup, and that's uh, we, it, so if things go south, which I kind of suspect they did based on the fact that there wasn't moving. But we'll see. Uh -oh. <laughs> Is it moving now? Uh, I should probably zoom in to be able to tell. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. The ticker's not moving over, and it's really, it's really weirding me out. It's hearing it. Duration. Uh, Okay, well, we'll figure it out. Uh, the joys of technology. <laughs> it should all work. It should. And it doesn't. But that's fine. Uh, yeah, no careers. 
So that's actually what got me into the podcast mm. was the fact that I had I had just heard so many people talk about the crazy lives that they had been leading and where they had been. I was like, we, I just I want to collect these stories. I'm absolutely fascinated by how people end up mm. where they are and where they want to go. Mm. Because I didn't know. I have no idea where I'm going from now. Mm. Well, 13 podcasts later, it seems like you've been successful. <laughs> yeah, there's so many fascinating people mm. in, in, the, in the scene. It's really great. Mm. Uh, how did you end up then with the National Play Network after your gap year, if you my, will? My jaunt. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I was connected to Jason Lowith, who was the executive director right. at the time, um, and started off sort of the first six months, uh, just effectively as an intern, actually, mm. um, just sort of like one day a week. And then, um, totally different from what we were just talking about, like, which <laughs> so rarely happens, but it like the position grew as the organization grew. Yeah, so okay. then yeah. I became the general manager and then I became the associate executive director. And so I was there exactly like almost to the day, five years. Mm. Um, and, uh, Jason Loweth left to run, um, only theater company. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and so Nan Barnett, who's the current executive director then came in. Um, so she's been there about a year and a half. Um, uh, and so I was there during that transition and, gotcha. um, it's really sort of this remarkable organization that, um, I really did not come up with any of the brilliant ideas to so feel like I can <laughs> brag on them about it. Um, but they're, uh, I mean, they have this rolling world premiere program, yeah, um, yeah. which is just, I think has helped change the landscape of new plays in America. It's sort of just this brilliant idea, um, where a playwright gets three separate productions within a year of the same new play. Um, and it's a totally different artistic team and a mm -hmm. totally different theater and a totally different patron community. And they learn a gigantic amount about the play. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. So it's, it's really exciting. That's, I mean, I, I forget where I heard that. It's strange. I worked at the alley for a long time, but never. So new plays wasn't a huge part of what they did. Mm -hmm. Um, but I heard the statistic that something like most of the, of the few new plays that get produced, Almost none of them get a second production. Premieritis. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. yeah. And you, and you, I mean, I've looked at the playwright submission forms and all that. It's like, must never have been produced, must never have been produced, right. must never have been. I was like, but you don't know anything about that play. Right, right. And I think, you know, I, I think that audiences care less about world premieres mm. than we think they do. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think it's more people, the more people who look at that are. Um, other artists yeah, or people in right. the theater. Um, but it's true that for so many years, I mean, Todd London's Outrageous Fortune um, came out about this uh, several years ago, and um, there really is this premieritis. It's people being afraid that if they don't do the new sexy thing, um, they won't drive audiences. And I think NNPN has helped. There have been many other organizations that have also helped, but to um, give second productions and to really... Yeah. Um, create this exciting new landscape of plays where, where playwrights have an alternative to the one production and then it's over. And, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think oftentimes the second, third production can be just as, if not more important than the first one. Absolutely. I, I, it's running the, sh running the play, when I run a show as a board op, obviously I zone out after a certain portion of events, yep. most of the time the plays aren't, or whatever, they're not, and they're enough for, for one night, but they're not enough for 80 nights. Like, right. I don't know how people survive on Broadway on the same <laughs> show for 10 years. That's yeah. just totally insane to me. But I work in theater. I have a pretty good understanding of 
dramaturgy. I was I worked in uh, like my German was German cultural studies. It wasn't just the language that we were engaged with texts and how to interpret them. And I never thought that seeing a, seeing a show once was enough. I teched mm-hmm. the show, I saw the show, and I begin to understand the show 30 shows later. Sure. 30 yeah. performances later, I finally sort of really get where things are. And that's with plays that everybody has an idea about, like mm-hmm. the mousetrap. Right, right. You already have an idea of what to do with the mousetrap, what, what it's about, all of that stuff. But a new play, there is no way in hell coming out of the rehearsal room you you actually know what you have in your hands, let alone after the first production. Right. Well, yeah, and I think for on the side of the playwright, I mean, so t- two separate, totally separate things. The first is, how do you know if what you've written is just is really great in part because you've been collaborating with this one director or this one art actor for a really long time. Right. So being able to see whether it holds up on the page the same way in the voices and mouths of other artists. And then also in the world of reviews, mm. unfortunately, one bad review can totally screw you over. Yeah. And so if somebody has bad clams and sees your play and reviews are really poorly, right. you still have two additional productions yeah, okay. um, to, to build on. And it doesn't mean that one per- it doesn't give as much power to the reviewers, which I think is yeah. a good thing ultimately. Um, and it just allows the piece to grow in this really exciting way. And yeah. I mean, we have these gigantic success stories. Um, Deb Loffer's End Days is one of them. Um, and this is a play she wrote, which um, is sort of in reaction to the 9-11 piece and, mm. um, and uh, has all these crazy characters. It's this really fabulous play and was a rolling world premiere for us. Um, and then uh, and then has had 39, I think, subsequent productions all over the world. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've had gigantic successes with so many other ones as well. And um, Tom Gibbons' Permanent Collection, which was the very first Rolling World premiere, has since had probably 40 productions, if not more. Um, so it's just, I think it's it's clearly working and mm, really yeah. successful and benefits not only the theaters, because NNPN gives theaters a grant to help mm, incentivizing gotcha. taking yep. a risk on a new course, play. Yeah. So it helps the theater, it helps the playwright, it helps the community. It's, it's a really awesome program. Yeah, and I, I really think that the, the healthiest theater companies, the, the theater companies who are doing work that I'm consistently most interested in, have at the very least a commitment to, that, like they're not an entire season, their whole mission isn't necessarily new plays, but who do new plays regularly. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's too easy to fall into a sense of that well, you know what you know what this play is about or any play is about, and working on new work just keeps that part of your brain limber that yeah. lets you interpret and see things fresh. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an exciting time to be doing new plays in America. That's yeah. for sure. It's really great. Yeah. That, that felt like a tagline. <laughs> it did. <laughs> uh, I yeah, I think I I covered everything that I walked into this room or this hallway. Um, open hallway. This uh, open plan wraparound thing around. Uh, what the, the pictures of this theater are super interesting. Yeah, it used to be a gym. That's oh, okay. That's I, yeah. I thought that was why that picture was on the wall. Yes, yeah. So the sort of far half where the brick is used to be a gym, and then they sort of built up yeah. around it. So I love it. Thanks. Yeah. Powerhouse Theater in at Vassar was a coal-fired power station. Wow, that's so interesting. So they gutted the interior, and it turned into a really interesting space because it's a totally configurable black box, mm-hmm. um, where you it, it, to the point where it has line sets, but 
you decide how they want to be. Like, they they don't run through particular shivs in the mm. ceiling. Like, you have to install the shivs and run it out. So what we did on the one show, actually, it was uh, Steady Rain, oh. um, which was hilarious. That's speaking of the way new plays work and wind their way. It's like, I did that. I did that production in 2006, and it became a super big thing, whatever, yeah. like three years later. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a five-sided set um, inside. So the it was a room that served a bunch of other room purposes, and one of them was this police interrogation room. So for that transition, we wanted these fluorescent lights to fly in from outside of the box, so through the ceiling. So we had, but the everything in the set was raked hmm. in weird ways. Like it was raked down and away from the audience. It was three feet off the floor, and just everything about it was meant to make you feel uncomfortable and jangled, and there was nothing quite symmetrical. It didn't totally line up. It's beautiful set and I totally forgot who designed it. Huh. Brilliant set though. The loudest sound effect I've ever heard is still in the shotgun blast at the end of that show. Jill B C DeBuff can pump the volume. Um, so yeah we could just we could just set it up mm -hmm. like on a rake, flying fluorescent fixtures, no problem. Wow. Just do it in a load and that and they actually turned the basement that used to be the coal bin into a, a like a true black box that was even smaller called the Shiva. Hmm. Um, that's actually named after somebody, but I did really want it to be named after the Hindu deities. <laughs> like, yeah. now, what is Vassar saying <laughs> about theater? But, yeah. Huh. Uh, but so, yeah, that's, uh, converted spaces are always so interesting. So I interesting. read, um, what's his name? Um, Peter Brook. He has that, that, uh, I think it's in the, the empty Space? Yeah, I think it's where he talks about don't solve all of your problems in the building. You mm -hmm. want the building to have things that you have to work around because mm -hmm. it forces you to, you know, think about problems to solve, and right. that's how you get creativity. Yeah. Have you ever heard a movie called The Five Instructions? No. I, it's, I, my my great uncle turned me onto it. It's Lars von Trier huh. finds this guy who made a, a really satirical short film in the '60s called The Perfect Man. Mm. He always idolized this filmmaker, so mm. he digs him up. Uh, the guy's about 65, I think, and much older, toward the end of his career, and says, "Okay, look, I really love your work, and I want to work with you." But and being von Trier, he's a he can be an extremely cruel person in his play in his in his in his movies, and he is actually in real life kind of a cool person. Mm. <laughs> he pushes him really hard. Mm. You can, you, I want you to remake this, and it's about like a, it's it's a guy in a in a like a white room, uh, doing everything that a man is supposed to do, like mm. eating. He's wearing formal wear. He's wearing a tuxedo and a mm. dinner jacket, and um, goes through all of that. He's like, okay, so the first time I want you to remake it just straight, mm. and I want you to do it on the streets of Mumbai, mm. and you can't hide the poor people. Or no, how did it go? You can't show the poor people, is what he said. You have to do this thing about this guy having a formal dinner and wearing all this really nice in the street, but you can't show poor people. Hmm. Um, so what the guy did was actually really clever. He set up an RP screen. So you couldn't see their faces or anything, but you could tell that the seething mass of humanity was behind it, hmm. which Lars didn't like. <laughs> Wow. But so he he gives them each of these serious tasks, and and the guy keeps making this movie over and over again, which he thought he understood in the '60s, mm. and just each little obstruction. The, my favorite one is um, he had to make an animated version of it. Wow! So this this was like I think it was a 2002 2003 film. So this was after Waking Life. Mm and Linklater had, and I think maybe even after A Scanner Darkly, but definitely after Waking Life. So mm -hmm. Linklater had figured out how to basically 
layer animation on top of live action. Hmm. So he shot it in Cuba. Whoa. Yeah, I can't. That, I think that was part of it. He shot it in hmm. Cuba and turned it into an animated version of it. That was freaking brilliant. Hmm. The movie's great. Hmm. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I. Great. This is. Uh, we're not even at the hour, but. Um, no. But. Um, just got it all in there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not used to being able to do anything efficiently. <laughs> it has to be a lot of words or it's not working. Uh, but yeah, so um, is there anything that the lab has upcoming that you want? Um, we'll probably, this will probably drop uh, early March, first week of March, I think, cool. would, will be when it comes out. Yeah, um, so our next big project is um, uh, it's called Generation Y. Mm -hmm. um, so we're in the middle of this Myriad Voices Festival, um, which Emerka uh, Chalo that I talked about earlier is part of. That was the second event in it. Um, and so the third is Generation Y. And so we're working with Georgetown students and then students from a bunch of different countries, including um, Egypt and uh, Iran and Iraq and, oh. and um, Afghanistan, um, Pakistan, sort of all over. Um, the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, and engaging in conversations around what their version of home is, and it's going to uh, be very um, uh, multidisciplinary and uh, potentially move all over the building, and it's going to oh, be super okay. exciting. So that's um, April 17th and 18th, okay. um, should, which should be really, really great. Um, and then Heather Raffa will be in residence with us next fall, which will be really exciting. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a fun time to be at the lab. Yeah, all right. Good thing yeah. to come. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for Thank your time. Thank you. Yeah.